Hi, everyone. This is Emma here for the Professional Book Nerds podcast sponsored by Overdrive. And today we have a very special guest returning to the podcast. We have Samantha Shannon. Hello. Welcome. Hi, it's so lovely to be back. Thank you for having me. I am so excited that you are here to talk about, I think, one of the most highly anticipated releases of 2023, A Day of Fallen Night. Yeah, I'm excited to finally be talking about it. Um, I've been working on it for the past three years, so it's pretty surreal that it's finally going out into the world. Yes, it's finally going to be out into the world and in the hands of readers. So A Day of Fallen Night will be on shelves on February 28th. Now, this takes us back into the world of the Roots of Chaos So for our listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with the new standalone prequel or have only heard of Priory of the Orange Tree, can you tell everybody what A Day of Fallen Night is about? Sure. So the Roots of Chaos cycle, um, it's going to, I haven't exactly specified how many books are going to be in it yet, but the general idea is that each of them can stand on their own and that each one is a self-contained adventure. So The Priory of the Orange Tree um, was a novel that came out in 2019. And while I was working on it, I realized that I had built such a big world with so many more stories to tell. Um, I really wanted to go back into the past and explore some of the events that led to the world of The Priory of the Orange Tree being as it was. So A Day of Fallen Night is set 500 years before the Priory of the Orange Tree, and it is about a war between dragons and humankind. And it's mentioned very frequently in the first book. It's called The Grief of Ages or The Great Sorrow. And it's a book about survival, I suppose. Um, It's about humans facing an insurmountable threat and how they manage. And yeah, it's it's just a, it, it shows you a very key event in the world's history, essentially. I love that. And I think readers may be interested to know then, since you had originally intended for Priory of the Orange Tree to be on its own, how soon after you were finished with Priory did you have the ideas for the characters that we would see in A Day of Fallen Night? It was such a long time ago that I wrote Priory. It was kind of between 2015 and 2018, which doesn't sound like a long time ago, but you know, when you, when you're working on multiple projects, it it kind of feels like it. So I don't remember the exact moment. I think it was probably when I, I started going into a bit more detail in my head about the grief of ages, because I knew that I would need to know a lot of things that happened during this period in order to accurately write the world of Priory. And so I was coming up with characters who were important during this time period. And I suppose it was writing about those characters. For example, there's a character called Queen Glorian, whose legacy hangs over the Priory of the Orange Tree. And I thought that exploring the world from her perspective would be really interesting. Um, And I remember I went to my agent and I said to him, you know, I'm thinking I might write another book in this same world. And we just kind of laughed because I remember when I said to him that I wanted the Priory of the Orange Tree to be a standalone, he just looked at me and he was like, I know you, it's not going to be a standalone. (laughs) Um, I think it's probably because I have an ongoing seven book series as well. So he knows that my imagination tends to run quite big and I probably wouldn't be able to resist writing more. Um, But yeah, it was probably... hmm, 
If I'm taking a wild guess, I'd say maybe like halfway through writing the Priory of the Orange Tree or two thirds of the way into it was when I first had the idea that I might want to write a prequel. But like I said, I really want to make them as standalone as possible, because I think as someone who loves to binge TV shows, I I think that it's sometimes quite nice to just reach the end of the story and not know that you have to wait for it to continue. So that's kind of the aim with this one. Each time you pick up a Roots of Chaos book, you know that there might be some loose ends, which I'm hoping to resolve in other books, but it's broadly a complete story. I love that. And I think that that's something the readers really enjoy as well, where you get to be re-immersed in this world that you may have fallen in love with, but see things from a different time period or different characters' perspectives. So the last time you were on the Professional Book Nerds podcast, you mentioned that you wrote parts of Priory with placeholder names for a lot of the characters. And I'm wondering if you did anything similar when you were writing A Day of Fallen Night or if those characters' names were chosen early on. I know a lot of research goes into the naming system for these books. Yeah, there were characters with placeholder names again. um, And there were a couple of characters whose names changed like right at the last minute when it was still possible to change them because I was just obsessing over them. Um, So the way I approach names uh, in the books, I I probably mentioned this in the previous episode I was on, but just in case anyone hasn't heard it, um, the way I construct names in the world of the Uh, the roots of chaos is that I draw from older forms of existing languages or from extinct languages and this was inspired by when I was at university I studied older middle English and I found that really interesting because you could you could really see how the modern language connects to its roots but also when I first looked at a book of old English it's it's so completely different It's, it's incomprehensible to the average speaker of modern English And I thought that would be a really good source to draw on for names. So I have this huge um, etymology document, which I think has grown to about 7,000 words at this point, where I I record where each of the names is from and what it means. Um, But yeah, there there was a lot of agonising over names in this book as well. (laughs) But I love how much thought and research goes into each of these characters' names. I feel like it makes it even that much more special for readers as well, who can then go and look into the names themselves and find that extra bit of context Mm -hmm. from these characters. um, And so for our listeners, I mentioned this book, A Day of Fallen Night, in an episode we did last month in our most anticipated books of 2023. And I probably butchered the pronunciation of all of the characters' names. And so there are four main characters in this story that we get uh, chapters from. And so I'm wondering if you can uh, let us know how to pronounce those names uh, for those four main characters and then how you decided who got a a point of view uh, in this story. Yeah, of course. Um, So I should just say that however you want to pronounce the names is fine. I don't want readers to to feel like it's a, a strain <laughs> reading mm-hmm. the book. And it was quite funny because the I think the the audio the audio version of the Priory of the Orange Tree, I think several of the names are pronounced differently to how I pronounce them because Audible only asked me about some of them. And I really don't mind that at all. It's it's fine. Um, so the the way I pronounce the names of the four main perspective characters in Day of Fall and Night, um, one is Glorian Berethnet, who is the princess of Innis. 
Uh, there is Wolfert Glenn, who is a nobleman who is Inish with a, an interesting past, uh, but he lives in Cross, which is a Northern Territory. Um, then you have Tanuva Milim, who is a member of the Priory of the Orange Tree. And then you have Dumai, who is, uh, she lives on a mountain and she's essentially, uh, she's a god singer. So she's trying to wake the gods of Seiki. Oh, and uh, regarding what, how I chose the perspective. So I knew I was going to tell the story from Glorian's perspective, because in the first Priory book, we see the, the house of Beresnet, which is quite an interesting royal dynasty. And you see uh, Sabran Beresnet, who is a descendant of Glorian, but we see her through the perspective of her lady-in-waiting, Eid. You never actually see into her head. So I thought it would be interesting to look at the pressure on the Beresnet queens from one of their perspectives. And Glorian is arguably the most interesting and famous of the queens, so she was an obvious narrator. Um, Wolf, I briefly mentioned in the Priory of the Orange Tree, and I he's he kind of has a small mention in the character list. I wanted there to be a character who could give us some perspective on Cross because it's a country that we don't see uh, in the first Priory book, and he 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 was kind of inspired by sort of various fairy tales and folk tales, um, and. I just I thought he was he would be an interesting figure because he's he's arguably the character that moves the most. I think he moves between the north, the west, and the south during the story. And yeah, he I he he just kind of called to me when I when I did like a test paragraph for him. Uh Dumai is also mentioned very briefly in Priory. I think it's it's literally in one sentence that she's mentioned as like a historical figure. And Again, because I had named her in Priory, I thought she would be an interesting figure to explore. I wanted to know more about her. And then Tanuva, Tanuva is probably the most interesting in terms of perspective, because I didn't actually intend to write her section from her perspective originally. I was going to write it from the perspective of her partner, Esbar. And the reason for that is because Esbar is an ancestor of Eid from the Priory of the Orange Tree. And I thought it'd be nice for readers to have these in order to sort of connect to the characters of Priory because I was you know asking readers to accept a totally different cast that perhaps it'd be nice for a few of the ancestors to tell the stories um, as is the case with uh, Glorian. Um, but then I wrote Esbar's opening scene which actually is still in the prologue. The prologue and epilogue are narrated by different people to the rest of the book and during uh, Esbar's opening scene I mention her partner Tanuva and she just really intrigued me. Like as soon as I started writing her, I had this really strong sense that Tanuva was both the happiest and the saddest woman in the world. And that was the, the description that came into my head, the feeling that I had. And sometimes I think it can be an interesting idea to explore a character who is more typically protagonist-like through a different character's eyes. So Esbar is, she kind of has more protagonist vibes about her. Like, you know, she's she's the heir to the Priory of the Orange Tree. She's kind of really bold and she's just, she just gave me a main character kind of, a, a main character bell went off in my head. But then that was almost why I was more drawn to Tanuva, who is more introverted and just is more like someone that you would expect to be 
a supporting character because she is so she's so generous and compassionate with others around her and she doesn't often focus on herself that much she's very she's a very caring person but then I thought maybe that would be more interesting as a perspective character so that's how I ended up telling most of the story from Tanuva's perspective and I'm really glad I did. I'm really glad you did as well. I loved her perspective. And that's so interesting that you had originally approached the story from Esbar's point of view and then sort of flipped that because I think Tanuva really sees things in a different way. I think that she very much feels that sense of duty to the Priory, but perhaps not quite as intensely um, as Esbar does. I absolutely loved their relationship as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like? There are several different um, relationships and, and romantic elements throughout this story. There's being one of the strongest relationships that we see throughout. What was that like to write these relationships? In their case, I love that they're sort of past that sort of falling in love early stages. Like they've been together for a very long time. They both have children. They're both very established and they're just there to support each other. I really thought that their relationship was quite beautiful. Thank you. I really enjoyed writing it. And I think I certainly went in with a lot of intent with their relationship in terms of what I wanted, because often in fiction, I feel like settling down and having children is presented as the end of a woman's story. It's kind of supposed to be what the female character aspires to throughout the book. And I have never particularly enjoyed this expectation, especially as someone who doesn't want to get married or have children herself. And so I thought, wouldn't it be fascinating if we have a couple who are way past that point, like you say, you know, they've already gone through the kind of the the falling in love and they've both had children and it's been they've been together for 30 years and I was really tempted by the idea of exploring an established relationship like that because most of the the love stories I've written previously both in my bone season series and in the Priory of the Orange Tree they are very much about falling in love for the first time and all of the the wonderful things that come with that and the less wonderful things that come with it. And I really, really enjoyed that. And there is, um, there are two love stories in A Day of Four Night that, which I won't spoil, but they are more like that. It's more about the discovery and just the joy of realizing you've fallen in love with someone. Um, And I hadn't really explored an established relationship before. And it was great to have just so much experience to draw from. Tanuva and Esbar have been together for 30 years and to have 30 years behind them. I mean, they've they've also known each other longer than the 30 years they've been together. So they're both in their early 50s. And so they've known each other for literally half a century. And that was really fun because, you know, I could have scenes, for example, where Esbar predicts exactly what Tanuva is doing without looking at her Um you know, they they just know each other so well. And that was really, it was just, just great fun. And it was also interesting because when you have an established relationship, it's not about getting the characters together. It was kind of about keeping them together and thinking about what could potentially strain the seams of their relationship. In which case with Esbar and Tanuva, um, there is a, a figure who I will not uh, spoil too many details about, but she arrives into this perfect world that Esbar and Tanuva have and she really starts to disrupt it and they're pulled in very different directions and there's a scene where 
Tanuva thinks to herself something like, for the first time in 30 years, she and Esbar had chosen different paths. And that was just really new and exhilarating for me as an author, because I have never explored a relationship like that before. And I don't often see um, older lesbian characters portrayed in fiction either. So that was quite important to me as well. Yeah, I love that their relationship is in that established phase. And again, it isn't about getting them together, but keeping them together after, you know, so many years and so many different obstacles and challenges that they've been through. And I think you also do a really wonderful job of exploring a a mature relationship with Sabrin and I'm just absolutely butchering the names, uh, Gorian's (laughs) parents. Oh, yes, uh, Sabrin and Bardholt, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I loved their relationship as well. But yeah, I really enjoyed writing uh, Bardholt and Sabrin's relationship. Um, I I loved also writing both of their parental relationships with Glorian because so much of all of their family dynamics are affected by their royalty. So Bardholt is a former, what the Inish would describe as a heathen, one who does not follow the way of the six virtues and so he has he's really had to to change himself a lot to be with Sabran and she's had to kind of accept his past and the man he has been and he was he's you know a warrior by nature he's had to do a lot of quite violent things in order to stay alive and that was it was just interesting writing that that intense attraction between them in spite of the tension of their sort of religious backgrounds. So yeah, I just, I just really, I loved all of the relationships in this book, actually. They were just such a, a genuine joy to write. And again, I won't say who it is, but there is a an enemies to lovers uh, relationship, which was great fun. Just let me just really get into like banter and tension and just snapping at each other. And it, it was really, really just great. <laughs> Yes, that that is my favorite romance trope. So seeing that in this was wonderful to to get those bits and pieces and feel that tension and all of those things. That was one of my favorite parts of this book for sure was that relationship. Again, no spoilers (laughs) for our listeners. So speaking of the tension, you write the story to build the tension beautifully in the first part of the book you have all of these different pieces coming together, building to this great conflict, um, you know, that we'll see as things carry on. And I'm wondering how you craft that tension in your writing, because it's so beautifully done across, you know, the whole first portion of the book. I'm just curious how, how you craft the tension in your writing. I'm really glad you think so. Thank you. I mean, I knew I always I do sometimes worry a bit that my my books aren't you know obviously you have to accept as a writer that your books aren't for everyone but it is nice to hear that you enjoy the slow build of tension because I am an author who does tend to do relatively relaxed beginnings of books like I don't like jumping straight into the action I tend to like the reader to be able to get to know the characters first And this was an interesting book to handle in terms of the buildup, because the key event um, is the eruption of this volcano called the Dreadmount. And of course, there was a part of me that was tempted to have the Dreadmount erupt as almost like the opening event of the book. But I just didn't feel like that really worked. I felt like we needed to 
to know the characters, to know the kind of worlds that they were living in before the eruption becomes significant. So, for example, for Glorian, uh, the Dreadmount is in a way one of the fundaments of her religion, because the Dreadmount erupted to create a dragon called the Nameless One, and her ancestor is said to have slain the Nameless One. And her continued existence is meant to keep the Nameless One at bay. So the eruption of the Dreadmount is kind of a sign that her religion may be in danger, because why is the Dreadmount erupting again, and why are more dragons coming if if she is divine, as she says she is. So I felt like we needed to understand the stakes before the Dreadmount erupted to make that really significant. So I tried to seed these little signs of things going wrong. Um, so the whole earth is, is tormented in this book by the rise of a particular kind of magic, um, fire magic from the core of the world. And the reason the Dreadmount erupts is because that that magic has gone out of control. It's become chaotic. So I enjoyed using kind of geological signs to build tension. So there's hot springs that suddenly boil when they haven't been before. And the build up to the actual eruption of the mountain itself. And yeah, I just tried to kind of seed little signs that something is amiss in the world that's going to come to the forefront really soon. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, I, I liked the build up. It was, it was, I like, as I said, I like the reader to be able to really get to know the characters and to understand the kind of danger they might be in individually before this, this event happens. I love that. And I think it was really well done in the way that you did get to know the characters from, you know, almost the start in certain circumstances before we get to all of the action, so to speak. And I love that you said that you sort of seeded these things throughout. When I was reading through it, it was almost like a mystery to be piecing together all of these disparate things, the hot springs, um, certain sightings, references to certain magic that sort of really builded, built, excuse me, the tension and pushed the story forward once we get into the later sections. And you also need to understand what could be lost in this huge disaster, because at the beginning of the world, uh, Tanuva and Esbar, particularly, like I mentioned, they live in this kind of idyllic world where, you know, they have almost this beautiful family. They have uh, they, they do. They are training to be warriors. They're training to defend themselves from a threat. But the actual the actual priory of the orange tree is kind of a utopia in some ways. You know, they don't have to pay taxes. They have the freedom to rule themselves and to know that that could be lost. You know, I, I feel I felt like if you hadn't seen the Priory before the Dreadmount erupted, then you might, might not have realised that, especially in terms of Tanuva's character, because she is so devoted to her family and so devoted to her duty. You know, you, you needed to really see the importance of that before for her before the eruption. Yes, I think that's beautiful that you really set the stage to see the stakes for what they're potentially about to lose if things continue once the dread mount erupts. And so that is a great segue to my next question, actually. Each character seems to grapple with the loss of something or someone uh, throughout the story. What made you want to write about grief and how different it can be when you're experiencing it? So there were two main themes that seemed to be pertinent to explore in this book. One of them was grief and the other one was motherhood. Um, and grief was an obvious one from the beginning because this period is literally called the grief of ages or the great sorrow. 
And it is uh, a, pretty much the worst period you could have been alive in this world's history. There was a plague. Uh, there was, you know, fire-breathing dragons attacking from on high. Uh, there was the eruption of the Dreadmount, which caused various, you know, issues with the weather um, that had a huge effect on, for example, the crops. So this was not a great period to be alive, and it is a period of enormous loss. So grief was, you know, it was it was a very obvious theme that I could explore. Interestingly, it was also a period of intense personal grief for me and also the collective grief of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I obviously did not anticipate that happening. And it's mentioned in the Priory of the Orange Tree that there was a plague during this period. So I knew I had to explore it. And it was supposed to be more based on the Black Death, but it was really strange to be writing about a pandemic while seeing that quite literally unfold in real time. So there was the the isolation that came from that because I was I live on my own. So when we were all in quarantine, that was a really just just a very surreal period where I would be just on my own for hours, days, weeks at a time. Um, and just seeing the kind of collective grief through social media mostly. That was my my window on the world. Um, so there was that, and then there was also uh, all of my grandparents died uh, during the time I was writing this book. And uh, I had not, I've been very fortunate that before that I had never lost someone close to me. And uh, especially my maternal grandmother, I was very, very close to her. And so I had this experience where I was writing about characters like Tanuva who, who live with a, a large amount of grief. and. I was having that happen to me for the first time. Um, so Tanuva particularly, her story is one that I felt very close to throughout the book. It's a different form of loss that she's experienced, but she actually loses people during the course of the book as well as the person that she's mourning from her past as well. So it, this book was particularly personal in that sense. Well, I'm sorry that it, it was based on things that you were actually experiencing, but I also think that it it will be cathartic for readers who have experienced something similar to see the different ways in which you can cope with grief and then hopefully, you know, move on from that. And in her story in particular, in Tanuva's story, I related a lot to the things that she was experiencing unfortunately. And it's, you just, the way in which it comes and goes in waves, or um, you feel like maybe you're past it and then something happens and it sort of brings everything to the surface. I thought the way that you wrote about that was so beautiful and, and true to life because it's not uh, straightforward. It's not necessarily getting from A to B when you're, you're dealing with all the different ways that grief can impact you. Thank you. I'm really glad it resonated with you. It really did. I just, I, this book was so beautifully done. I, I mean this in the most respectful way. I felt so sad and weird when I finished because I was weird is not the right word, but just this, it was so beautiful. I loved the way that everything came together, um, but I was very sad to see that I had finished the book. Um, uh, yeah. Th thank you. It's, it is a book that I put a lot of my heart into, and especially in terms of the craft, um, 
I was just really paying attention to my craft. And I, I am a very craft oriented writer generally, but with this book in particular, like every single detail, I was just going over, you know, over and over again. And um, even down to the, the rhythm of the sentences, I was reading every sentence out to see how it sounded and how it felt. Um, because for some reason, I just I just wanted each sentence to feel like a small poem. So every single aspect of the book was very polished and has been thought about a lot. And all of that really comes across. I mean, in the way that it made me feel as a reader, I think knowing that there's so much care went into it, you certainly feel the poetry. And then, you know, the way that you beautifully described everything that's going on in this world, it definitely feels like a loss, even though the story is beautiful when you finish, because I, I wanted to be in this place for a little bit longer. Well, I suppose, I suppose that's what we want as fantasy authors. We want to transport you somewhere. And if, you know, if you're sad to step out of it, then in a way that's, that shows that we've done our job. Hey Hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are we are always unpacking that very question on sleepover cinema check out sleepover cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com see you soon hello and welcome to novel conversations a podcast about the world's greatest stories i'm your host frank lavallo And for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Absolutely. And so the world that you've created here is very woman centric. They play a very important role in particularly in the Priory and then also a Glorianne, you know, the monarch is the one that carries on the line. It's a line of Queens. So that was refreshing to be in a fantasy realm where the women are almost, well, are more important uh, in a lot of ways uh, than, than the the male roles that we normally see in fantasy. So why was it important to you to create uh, such a place? Well, it started with the the legend that inspired the entire series, um, which is the legend of St. George and the Dragon. I'm I'm not sure how well known the legend is uh, in America, but in uh, certainly in England, because George is the patron saint, Uh, It's a very well-known story, and especially because I was raised in the Church of England, so I was often exposed to the story of St. George. So for anyone who doesn't know, it's a relatively simple story on the surface. It is about a knight, St. George, 
who finds a town or a city being tormented by a dragon and he saves a beautiful princess who is being sacrificed to the dragon and they live happily ever after. Um, and when I was when I sort of used to hear this as a child, um, I was always curious about who the princess was. And she didn't tend to have a name in the version of the stories I heard, and she didn't really tend to do anything. So then I started researching the roots of the story. And the more I uncovered about it, the more I wanted to confront it and to reimagine it from a more feminist perspective. So I imagine this scenario where, you know, what if the princess was the one who killed the dragon and the knight stole her achievement and passed it off as his own? Um, and so that was where it came from. So in order for it to be an effective reimagining, it needed to be one where the women were able to have active roles. And something that I've has been really important about it to me is, is celebrating different kinds of strength in women. So you have characters like Eid, like Tanuva, who are good with swords, good with spears. But then you also have characters like uh, Sabran in the Priory of the Orange Tree, and indeed the Sabran in A Day of Fallen Night, whose skills lie more in politics and public speaking. You know, Sabran is described as being golden-tongued. She can make anyone think what she wants them to because she's such a good kind of compelling speaker. Um, and that was that was very important to me that not all of the women were necessarily defined by what we might call traditionally masculine strengths, because there was definitely a period of my career. Um, I got my book deal in 2012 and my debut, The Bone Season, was published in 2013. And there was a very uh, strange period of my career, which probably went up to about 2016, when I was constantly being asked about why I wrote strong female characters. Um, and I'm, I'm still not quite sure where this came from. I think it was perhaps in the aftermath of the Hunger Games. But there was definitely a period where in order to write a strong female character, they had to have traditionally masculine traits. And it was there was almost a juxtaposition between the, the Bella Swans of the world who had, you know, more interest in, again, what we would call conventionally feminine pursuits, um, like having a family and that sort of thing. Um, and then you, they, she was very much, in my view, pitched against characters like Katniss, who, you know, Katniss is a hunter-gatherer and she's stoic and she's not great at connecting with people on an emotional level. And I suppose I it, it was interesting because I love Katniss as a character, but I felt like presenting her in that way, people were kind of using her to demonize characters who weren't exactly like that. And for me, in my approach to feminism, I don't think it's necessarily feminist to say that a woman is only strong if she behaves in ways that we culturally associate with men. Um, so I do have characters like that, but it was important to me to show a variety of different women, like I said, who have different interests and different strengths. Um, and yeah, that, I suppose that's where it came from and why there are so many female characters and voices in the series. I love that. And I think that's so true that there are many different ways to portray strong women without having that directly associate to things like archery or spear throwing, although that can certainly be something that they're good at as well. Yeah, like it's it's definitely great if you have women who can do that, because that does still break um, 
conventions of the, the fantasy genre, perhaps not within the last few years, because we have more and more women who are writing epic fantasy that is centered on women. I'm, I'm far from the only author doing that. Um, but I think the reason I became so conscious of this was actually an interview I did in 2014, and I was in Madrid uh, promoting my, my first book. And uh, for anyone who hasn't read it, my debut book, The Bone Season, is centered on a young Irish woman named Paige. And she is a career criminal. You know, she's good with she's good at fighting. She's she's more of a Katniss style character, I suppose. And I remember I sat down to do this interview and the interviewer said to me, when you wrote The Bone Season, why is it that you didn't write a strong female character like Katniss? And I was totally perplexed by this because, first of all, I didn't understand why every single female character was being compared to Katniss, who, like I said, is a wonderful character, but it does her a great disservice if she's being flattened into this blueprint of a strong female character. And you couldn't move for female characters being compared to Katniss back then. And it was odd because, and to this day, I still kick myself for not pressing the matter with, with the journalist because I was still... <laughs> I was still quite, I was still, I was very young when I got my first book published. I was only 21. And I just, I just didn't have the strength at the time to, to push back and kind of inquire about what he meant. So I think I just stammered something like, well, I think she's strong, but I really wanted to say to him, and if I could speak to him again now, I would say, why did you not consider Paige to be a strong female character? Is it because she has moments of vulnerability? Um, is it because there's a scene where she kind of, there's various moments where she behaves slightly irrationally? But to me, a flawed character is a strong character. So ever since then, I've had this bit, I've had a bit of a hang up about the term strong female character and what it means. And what I want to write is complex, layered female characters, not just this kind of strange, flattened idea of what strong means, because what does strong mean? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think you accomplish that here because these characters show that there are layers, things are complicated, and that it can be, you can show strength in many different ways mm -hmm. and not just in the Katniss way that I think we definitely sort of just ascribe to certain characters and use those as, as the, the touch point. And I wonder if you saw this, there was something going around on social media recently. I, I don't think it's a new concept because I believe you spoke about this in an interview recently as well, but there was something along the lines of, is this fantasy series really young adult or is it just written by a woman <laughs> <laughs> and sort of this way that we classify, you know, female centric or female driven uh, fantasy series. I think it's there for whatever reason, particularly in the, the US market, more likely to be marketed as young adult, sort of regardless of the ages of the characters or anything like that. And um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. I believe A Day of Fallen Night is marketed as adult in the US though. So, but Priory was perhaps young adult. Um, so actually, all of my books in my entire career have been published by Bloomsbury in both the US and the UK and India and Australia as adult. I've never been on their YA list. I've, I've never ever, um, my books have technically not ever been categorized that way. Um, but I'm not surprised to hear that that debate has come up again, because it is something that does seem to affect female authors particularly. 
And I remember I was nominated for a French prize once. And uh, according to the French readers I've spoken to, this is a problem there as well. Um, but I was nominated in, in the children's category or the young category. And it's interesting because I should, I should make it very clear that I love young adult fiction. I think it's it's great. Um, I think it's it can be incredibly experimental and bold. And it's not that I don't want to be compared to it because I don't like it. You know, I read it myself. But it's I think there is an important distinction to make between books that can be read by young adults and books that are specifically written for young adults. And I write my books not specifically with young adults in mind. And I do think that is an important distinction. Um, so it's strange because The Priory of the Orange Tree and indeed my bone season books um, have been published as YA by some of my publishers abroad. Um, I believe, for example, in Spain, it's categorized as YA. And I was very surprised about that with Priory because most of the characters in the book are significantly above the age we associate with YA, which is 12 to 18. Um, you know, Nicolais, for example, uh, one of the narrators in the first book is 64. So I was absolutely astonished when it was categorized as YA because it just didn't, it just seemed really strange that yeah, a book with a protagonist and one of the protagonists being in his 60s, but even, you know, Loth is 30, um, Eid is in her late 20s. So this is significantly out of the YA range. The only character who is close to it is Tane, who is 19. So even then, she is just slightly out of the YA category. Um, and it it does, the fact that it happens to women a lot, I mean, it could partly be because, you know, women probably do write the bulk of YA. So I don't know if there's this assumption that anything women write must be YA. Um, but it does send a message that, women can't write adult fiction I suppose and that does definitely carry its own baggage with it so yeah it's 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 difficult and I do think it's it's something that happens more at at a, at a bookshop level perhaps than it does in the publishing house because usually usually when female authors write adult I presume they are normally categorized that way as I am but I suppose it's something to do with just wanting to get the books to the right people and just you know I, I don't think there's any there's any bad intention in it I just it, it just seems to have been something that's happened for the past few years but it is a conversation that's come up several times so I guess there's probably more awareness of it now and for me for me the main issue is that YA is technically categorized as children's fiction so for example in Bloomsbury kids and YA is one section of the publishing house as far as I'm aware mm -hmm. and again it's not quite so it's not quite so much of an issue if you categorize something as YA because I think the average you know 17 18 year old would probably be totally fine with the Priory of the Orange Tree but if unfortunately it then gets cast categorized as children's fiction and again if I'm writing with adults in mind I don't think it's a great idea for my books to be categorized as kids because it hasn't been written for kids it's and there might be content in there that I would not be comfortable with a child reading. So I think that that's kind of the issue as well. It's the, the, the way that YA is technically children's and should we be categorizing adult fiction among children's fiction? And I suppose it's a, you know, it's, it's a big conversation to have, which is why it's gone on for so long. But it's yeah, it, it's definitely a thing. <laughs>
Absolutely. And I think that that is important to know that, you know, when you're writing something for an audience versus if it could have crossover potential to that audience. I think that's a a great distinction. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that it's, for example, if you were writing for children, you might need to be slightly more clear about what is morally right and wrong, for example, whereas in adult fiction, you assume that the reader can think in in a more nuanced way, I suppose, than than a child can. So uh, yeah, I, I do think it is an important distinction to make. Exactly. You can be a little bit more morally gray, perhaps, perhaps for adults than you would be in a children's book uh, on a similar topic. Speaking of fantasy in general, I'm wondering if you have any favorite fantasy tropes to read or to write into your books. Oh, interesting. Um, Hmm. What is a favorite fantasy trope? Do dragons count as a fantasy trope? I, I think so. <laughs> um, I definitely have had a, a lifelong love of dragons. So I was really thrilled that I got to include uh, a dragon, sort of make them the the main mythological creature in, in one of my series. Um, another thing I actually love is immortality as a subject. I'm fascinated by immortality and it comes up in both of my series, The Bone Season and The Roots of Chaos. And I just love exploring it from different perspectives and thinking about how immortality would shape a character. Um, so for example, in the Bone Season series, there are these um, these essentially giants from another world who are biologically immortal and I think so deeply about you know how would a character like that respond to the same situation as a mortal human character so that's something I'm really intrigued by and like I said it comes up in pretty much all of my work yeah I think that's I think that's probably the main one actually immortality (laughs) I love that. And I love the way that you portrayed dragons in this as well. There were several different dragons portrayed here, but I loved the way in which each sort of harkened back to um, different history and different mythology. I'm thinking of the dragons, uh, particularly that Dumai interacts with in her portion of the book. Yeah, it's always fascinated me that the different mythologies portray dragons almost opposite to each other, like you have the 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 kind of the idea of an evil fire-breathing dragon, but then we also have mythologies where dragons are more associated with water and with benevolence and luck. So that that really intrigued me, and it's, it's where the magic system for Priory came from, was from that kind of sharp uh, divergence in, in how dragons are portrayed. Absolutely. I'm curious to know if you have a favorite character from this book. Oh, this one is so hard to choose a favorite. Um, I think it's interesting because I think Dumai is probably the most similar to me um, in terms of we were the same, we were the same age. So I think I was about 27 when I started writing the book. So Dumai, like I said, we we are we are about the same age and it was really nice to have a character who was in her late 20s, early 30s, because I do tend to think that often characters in adventure novels uh, are a little bit younger, like in their teens or early 20s. So I, it was important to me to have a character who was my age, who you know other women of my age could see themselves mirrored, hopefully. Um, and she also kind of goes on a journey of, with her sexuality, which was also quite close to mine. 
Um, and then, but I think probably my favorite is Tanuva, even though I, I loved all of them in different ways. Um, Glorian, for example, allowed me to go back to being my sort of 15, 16 year old self, which was a really fun experience to, well, sometimes fun and sometimes kind of, yeah, a bit troubling almost to go back to how I thought as a teenager about some things and the discomfort in my own skin. Um, but I liked being able to connect with that part of my past again. Um, and then Wolf is not very similar to me at all, but his voice was really fun to write. Um, I, I really tried to enrich his voice with a lot of vocabulary. So I, I used quite a lot of Scots, for example. Um, but I think Tanuva ultimately is my favorite of the group, um, just because she's such a, like I said, she's such a kind character in the way she sees the world. She, her head was a, mostly a pleasure to be in for that reason, because she has so much compassion and such a big heart. And she has that love from Esbar and CU. Like she, she's a character who loves a lot and is loved a lot. And like I said, she is the character I felt closest to in terms of my, my own grief. So I feel like she'll always be a really special character for me. I appreciate as a reader that you wrote characters from several different points of life and, and different age ranges as someone also in their early thirties. I appreciate seeing characters in that age range because we do kind of skip over them in in certain stories you either have much younger or, or potentially much older. And so I, I love the emergence of clearly identified characters in their thirties, you know, so that yeah. we're included in that. Yeah, and it was important to me as well that I think that ageism is a real issue for women in terms of especially representation in media. Like just recently, I actually saw there was like an open letter from uh, actors who I think were mostly based in the UK, um, but they were calling for better on-screen representation of women over 45. And while I was writing A Day of Fallen Night, I spoke to a few of my friends who are in their 40s. Um, I spoke to my mum, who's in her 50s. And something that came up quite a lot was that they felt invisible after a certain age. And I do think that in the patriarchal culture we live in, women are valued for this kind of, you know, how, yeah, essentially we're valued for being younger. And once we reach a certain age, we're considered less worthy of notice. And it really upset me, like, especially to hear my mum say that she really felt that when she reached a certain age. So it was really important to me that I had characters like Tanuva and Esbar, um, there's the Grand Empress, uh, there's Sagal, who's the, the leader of the Priory at the beginning of the book. And also I had some moments um, where I really tried to push back against how we think about age in women. So there's two moments in the book where younger characters consider older characters and think of them as being beautiful or enviable in some way. So Tanuva thinks about Sagal and she sees the lines on her face and she thinks, you know, it will be she thinks it's like a sign of wisdom the way like the rings in a tree are. And she envies that Sagal wears that wisdom on her face so clearly. And then there's a moment when Dumai, when she looks at the Grand Empress who has like white streaks in her hair and she kind of compares it to having snow combed through her hair and she's really excited to look like that. And I think that's something that books and especially fantasy books can do is challenge the way we think about things like that and what we consider cultural norms. 
Absolutely. And I think that that's a very important discussion. And I love the way that these characters were portrayed, because I think with the way that women are presented in the media, nobody has any real idea what anybody looks like at any age. And so I saw recently there was this big article. I don't know if it, if it's uh, circulated outside of the U S but that there was this huge commentary on Hillary Duff looking incredible at 35 and she looks the same as she did 10 years ago. And a lot of the conversation I saw was people shocked at how great she looks. And then others were saying, well, how do you think she's supposed to look at 35? She's still like incredibly young and just a really interesting conversation that nobody has any idea what you're even supposed to look like in your thirties, forties, fifties, et cetera, because of the way that we just see sort of one standard portrayed in the media of they could be indiscriminate age. Yeah, that's, that's really sad. Like it's, that's wild to think that somebody would be shocked that someone would still look you know inverted commas good at 35 it's but yeah that that is really important as well and also um I wanted to talk about menopause for example which is something that I very rarely see discussed in media I mean I think that there has been a pushback against uh, menstruation stigma in books like I've seen more and more fantasy books acknowledging menstruation in some way but I don't often see menopause talked about. And I think that's another part of the invisibility of women as we get older is that this subject is somehow considered taboo. So again, I I really wanted to, to discuss that in the book because both Esbar and Nuva are, you know, going into menopause. Absolutely. And so just to wrap us up a little bit from our conversation, I have a few random questions if you'll indulge me, and then we'll just quickly circle back to a day of fallen night. Sure. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what you're working on currently. I did see on social media that you are in the thick of edits to an anniversary edition of Bone Season. Yes, um, that's been so fascinating. And I'm so glad that Bloomsbury has allowed me to do it. So like I said, I was really young when I wrote my debut. I was actually 19 and still at university when I wrote it. And I've always, even though I think that obviously the, the ambition and the vision was there, I've always felt that the size of the vision outstripped what I was capable of from a craft perspective at the time. And I was very lucky that the series has gained a a loyal readership regardless of that. But it's always frustrated me that I love all of my other books, but I would read back on the bone season and think, oh, you could have done this so much better. And, you know, I've like I said, I'm now 31. So having a book I wrote when I was 19 represent a series that I'm still working on now and being the first installment, like the introduction to the world for readers has always frustrated me because I would see people say, you know, there's there's info dumping, like the world is quite confusing and disjointed. And I would agree with that. Most of the time, I'm very confident in my books, but with the bone season, I could see the flaws in it myself. So when Bloomsbury said they were going to be doing a 10th anniversary edition, I said to them, look, can I properly edit this? You know, Can I do like a, a really thorough edit on it? And I think they thought I meant like light edits, which originally I was thinking about. But then I went back to it and I thought, no, this needs this needs to be really, really, you know, I need to really deconstruct this. And I ended up really significantly rewriting it. And I'm just in the last couple of days of my copy edit of the book now. And I'm still making 
pretty radical changes to it at this stage. Um, and my hope is that I've been able to bring the skill I've attained over 10 years to that first instalment. And I'm just hoping that it will be more likely to get readers into the series. You know, I've tried to make the world building more accessible. I've stripped out any kind of unnecessary uh, kind of unnecessary tangents in the book. Because it's always interesting when you write the first book in a series as well, because you are trying to figure your way through this world. And so I could really see in the bone season where I was exploring all these possibilities and thinking about where the series could go. And it, it had just become quite confusing. Like the timeline is, is not in the best, it was not in the best state. I think the other thing was that I was, like I said, I was still at university when I was working on it. And I was trying to juggle um, a pretty intense degree with the book. So I didn't have as much time to devote to the edits as I would otherwise have. And I do fortunately have now. So that has been, uh, it's just been such a wonderful experience and such a huge relief. It just feels like a massive weight off my shoulders to, to know that there is this new, more polished version of the bone season going out. So that will be out this summer. What a wonderful experience though, to have Bloomsbury be so supportive of sort of a, a revised version of the, the book that sort of started it all. I think readers will be very excited to see of what's in store for the anniversary edition of the bone season. I hope so. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not got new scenes per se, but I do think it will be a completely different experience for long-term readers as well. They will have new dialogue. Um, the scenes play out in slightly different ways. So I do hope it will kind of feel like a new book for them as well. Absolutely. And so A Day of Fallen Night has not even come out yet. And I'm already going to ask you if there are plans to return to the Roots of Chaos world again after this. I have actually sold another book in the Roots of Chaos world. Um, I sold it as part of a two book deal to Bloomsbury um, last year, uh, which is one of them is a third Roots of Chaos book. And the other one is a book uh, inspired by the Greek goddess Iris, which will be a standalone. Um, and so, yeah, I will definitely be writing a third one. I, I need a break from the long doorstoppers for a while because yes. uh, A Day of Fallen Night was a really tough book because every single edit, it was, you know, 800, well, actually more than 800 pages. And every single edit, I had to go through 800 pages with a fine tooth comb. And there were times when I felt like I was going mad, like even though I love this book so much. It was a grueling edit, um, especially because you're on deadline a lot of the time. So you're having to go through this massive behemoth of a book um, and and try to, because I'm so detail oriented as well, it's I, I really agonize over every page. And so every edit was was a really draining experience. So I just need a little break from those and um, because I, I also need to write the fifth and sixth book in my bone season series. So that will be my focus. I'll probably start the next Roots of Chaos book around the same time I start the seventh bonus season book, which is the final one. So it's coming, just not for a few years. Absolutely. That's great. And I do think that readers will see the care and the craft that you have put into A Day of Fallen Night. It's absolutely beautiful. Thank you. So in all of your free time between the anniversary edition edits and A Day of Fallen Night and all of your other projects, is there anything that you are reading or listening to right now? I recently listened to a wonderful audiobook. Um, I had to sign 14,000 pieces of paper recently for uh, the, there's 
very special editions of a day of fall and night and I was having to sign tip-ins um and I decided I would start listening to audiobooks while I was doing that so that I obviously I needed something I could do with my hands occupied and um I listened to a wonderful book called Inferno a memoir of motherhood and madness by Catherine Cho and it's a you know as, as the title suggests it's a memoir and it's about um Catherine's experience with postpartum psychosis and it's it's just a wonderful book and Catherine narrates it herself and it's just a, a really interesting exploration of women's health and childbirth and just it's, it's it's just wonderful I can't I can't really explain it but it's it's definitely worth a read I would highly recommend it um, especially in audiobook format um, and it's interesting because I don't often read non-fiction or memoir but this one just grabbed me straight away so I would I would definitely recommend that um what else could I recommend um a, a book that I read last year um but I will definitely recommend because uh, I think it will probably appeal to readers of Priory is uh it's called The Final Strife by Sarah L. Arifi and it is an epic fantasy uh inspired uh by Arabian and Ghanaian mythology and it's Basically, I, the reason I love it so much, I mean, there's various reasons I love it. I love the sapphic romance. I love the, the world building. Um, like there's, it's set in this island where there's blue sand and it kind of, it, there's this kind of hurricane force that blows the sand through the city. It's called the tide wind and everyone has to hide from it. Um, but the reason I love it most is because of its protagonist, Sila, who is kind of like an interesting inversion of the chosen one trope. So Sila was a chosen one who is is trained from birth to bring down the the regime of this of this island um which divides people by blood color into a really strict caste system but she failed in her task and she's now turned to to drugs and she she sees a chance of redemption in this book but she's just it's just so interesting to read the trope of the chosen one but seeing from the perspective of someone who's failed their calling essentially and what they do after that. Absolutely. That sounds wonderful. I know readers will definitely appreciate their recommendations if they're looking for something in the same sort of vein and, and style of your books. So just to wrap us up, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, I'm only active on Instagram now. I've come off all other social media. So it's say, S-A-Y underscore Shannon. And that's that's me on Instagram. Wonderful. And uh, is there anything that you want readers to take away from a day of fallen night? I know that's an impossible question. Um, mm, it, it, it's, it is really hard to answer that question because I know every reader will bring different experiences and expectations to it. Um, I just really hope you enjoy the journey, like whether you've read Priory or not. Um, I hope you enjoy having this really long adventure that will conclude in one setting. And I just hope that it takes you away from the world for a bit. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Professional Book Nerds to talk about A Day of Fallen Night. It was a wonderful treat to have you come back and chat with us. It's been a really lovely conversation. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an evergreen podcast signature program. 
To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey, nerds. I'm Sarah, the paper nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.